At one time or another, whether you are someone who is a follower of Christ or maybe you're not sure you believe everything you've heard about Jesus in the Bible, for most people here in the Western world, there comes a time in our life when we are all presented with this question. What difference does God make? Like, what difference does God actually make? If you're someone who's a follower of Jesus and you believe that God has sent you on mission to bring the realities of the gospel into the everyday rhythms of your life, you probably have run into this same question with the people in your spheres of influence, right? And, uh, you know, the people that you're intentionally building relationship with that are disconnected from God. You've, you've probably had this conversation already. And in fact, if you have any type of uh, uh, intention of building relationship with those who are far from Christ, I guarantee you this question will eventually come up. What difference does God make? Um, And maybe they don't ask the question, what difference does God make? But when you're given the permission to engage in spiritual conversation with those disconnected from God and his family, the church, maybe the conversation sounds uh, maybe more like this. Maybe you've heard this said to you. You know, Phil... (sighs) You know, I, 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 I get this whole Christian thing, and if, if the point of becoming a Christian is to turn, I think I get this, if, if, if the point of being a Christian is to turn bad people into good people, then I, I, I don't know, there's this like really, really, really good Buddhist guy I know. And he's like the nicest guy in the world. In fact, he's probably nicer than you, Phil. And he kind of does all the things that the Bible says are the behaviors of a Christian. So Why do I need to become a Christian? What difference does your God make? Have anyone ever wrestled with that with another person? Or maybe maybe you yourself have asked yourself this, or you've thought it in the same way, or you've said this to yourself. You know, I, I know this Hindu guy, and he believes and practices all these things that the Bible says are the behaviors of a of a Christ follower. I even know an atheist, and, and they're really, really like excelling at this kindness and forgiveness and, and, and not given to anger, all these kind of things. And so, what difference does God then make? So the question we're trying to answer over the next couple of weeks is this question, what difference does God make? I think it's just a fair question. And really, it's not just a question that I've pulled out of uh, thin air, it's It's the question that I believe that Paul answers as we go over these next few uh, chapters uh, as we head in and finish out the the book of Ephesians. And so today what I want us to do is uh, we're going to get a little little scholastic. Is that okay? Is that okay? Uh, Who was I talking to? Um, Oh, yeah. I'm not going to name names. That'd be rude because they might be here today. Um, But (laughs) someone invited their family and their family came and they're like, that was a really good TED Talk. So I was offended. And so today we're going to get really scriptural today and expositional. So hold on to your seats, break out your concordances and dictionaries because I'm about to blow your minds. Okay, not really. (laughs) Too down to earth for that. So we'll attempt to at least try to sound smart. But today we are going to, uh, really what we're going to do today is Take a look at what Paul does. Uh, through the rest of Ephesians, we'll find some real practical things that Paul talks about behavior-wise. But in our passage of Scripture here today, between verses 17 and 24, what Paul does is he establishes, or maybe, should I say, reestablishes a theology that I think is really, really important for us to look at. Because if we don't understand this theology, this way of thinking about who God is, 
and just skip on to the, old, the stuff you know, about not lying and, and, and being honest and all this kind of stuff, we could, we could view following Christ as just one way to approach morality instead of the way that was attended to be embraced. And that's a real big danger, by the way, that if for you, the Christian faith is simply just the best version of the morality you most align with, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying I'm not sure if you follow Jesus. And so the hope is that what we'll do is we'll together see more clearly how the moral commands, as we kind of go through this series, how the moral commands that are to come in the verses to follow our passage today come from really a fundamentally different place than what other religions or philosophies teach. And that's really, really important. So hopefully you're in Ephesians chapter 4. Are you in Ephesians chapter 4? Say yay. yay. Okay, half of you. All right, well, good thing I have it on the screen. Hey, before we, we go into this, can I, can I just pray with you this morning? Father God, I pray this morning that as we look into your word that you are Holy Spirit, um, which brings us into all truth, would help us to understand with all understanding what it is that you are wanting to speak into the hearts and the minds of those who love and follow you. And for those who are not yet sure, they believe everything they've heard about Jesus in the Bible, would they get a sense that they have clearly understood who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf for us to be restored to you. And so we can live life more than just an outflow of morals, but live our lives as an outflow of the difference that God makes in all those who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. In your name I pray. Amen. We have commented on this before, but when Paul says the word Gentiles, he is not referring to people of a certain race, right? He is speaking in terms that they would have understood immediately, that he was referring really to anyone who is disconnected from a right relationship with God and an unclear understanding of who Christ is. So when Paul starts off this section, he says this, he goes, now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, that literal word there, walk there, that phrase in Greek literally means this, as you are living, it connotates this idea as, hey, now Live every moment, every decision. You're walking. It's more of like this ongoing thing that you're doing. It's not just your walk, but now you should no longer continue to live as the Gentiles do, but now continue to live in another way, which he'll say here. But first he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles in the futility of their minds. Now, sometimes, you know, you know some people are like, oh, here we go. We're talking about race and all that kind of stuff. Just so Paul makes sure that everyone understands he's not saying don't be like a Gentile, and, and, you know, in, in other words, like the, the customs and, you know, that race, because I know sometimes we think about that. It, it's really weird for us to talk about it. And in fact, probably in our political climate, it, <laughs> Paul would, Paul, someone would probably come to Paul and be like, you can't use a race to tell people not to act like. That's <laughs> so, but you have to understand the culture that he's in. And, and just in case he wasn't clear. In verse 18, he says this, they, and, and he means this idea of those who are disconnected from God, he says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from life of God because of the, because of the ignorance that is in them. So, so here he is, he's establishing this idea, look, hey, if you are someone who has now uh, been all what 
chapters 1 through 3 and really the beginning of 4 says that you are now finding your identity in Christ and you are part of the fellowship of God and that you belong to Christ and that you are in Christ. Listen, if you, all, if you believe all that and you've been saved by God's grace, therefore, don't, don't live like those who've been disconnected from God, the Gentiles as he would call them. Because if you do, you will be darkened in your understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in you. Now, I don't know. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I think when you talk to the, just like the average non-church-going person, and when you allow them to tell you the perspective of Christians, um, you know, they, I, I, they, they seem to not have this idea that Christians can be people who at times in their life, people who are far from God know that they're far from God and uh, that they're disconnected from God or maybe even alienated from God. Uh, I know I have a friend of mine who is, who is not a follower of Jesus and and she knows it, and she, she even jokes about it. She's like, yeah, I, I, could never, I could never go to your church, Phil, because, you know, I mean, lightning might strike if I come to your church. And, you're like, and so, I mean, they're really real. They're real with this idea of alienation. And for some, I don't know if it doesn't bother them or not, but it just doesn't seem like it. But I think they don't realize that sometimes people who have made a decision to follow Christ sometimes feel alienated from God, disconnected from God. And I don't know if you've ever feel, felt alienated or disconnected from God, but chances are that if you've ever felt alienated or maybe disconnected from God in a season of your life, you may have asked this question that we're trying to answer in this series. What difference does God make? Or maybe you didn't ask it like that. Maybe you asked this question. Why does God feel so distant? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I have. I have. And one of the cases that Paul makes here is that God oftentimes feels distant, not because he is far from us, but simply because we're ignorant of him. Now, before you're offended of me using the word ignorant, I'm just quoting his words. Maybe I can soften it by explaining it a different way. Just for all intents and purposes, just run with this word ignorant, even if it offends you. I mean, just because something offends you doesn't mean you stop listening at all times, right? So let's go with this idea. If we're ignorant of God, when we're ignorant of God, what happens? I think what happens oftentimes if we are ignorant of God, if we are unaware of who he is, the most understandable thing is that we can't see how beautiful God is. And we definitely don't see the breadth of his glory or the splendor of his majesty. When we are ignorant of God, we find it difficult to answer simple questions like, hey, what's God been up to in your life recently? For those of you who are involved in missional communities, that's one of the questions we often ask each other because we actually believe that part of the rhythm of being deeply connected with God is seeing the work of God in the everyday rhythms of our lives. But sometimes, we all feel a little disconnected from God. So sometimes that question doesn't feel like excitement, but feels like a burden. And if you've ever felt that way, you might have 
felt a little alienated and disconnected from God. You may have been ignorant of God. And when we're ignorant of God, we definitely don't understand his loving kindness, and therefore we can't seem to really believe that God is kind. (laughs) And he's the kind of God who is more than able, as Ephesians 3.20 says, to accomplish infinitely more than we can comprehend or even ask. And when we're ignorant of God, we struggle to even realize that he is what we are created for. Like, he is what we're created for. And, and in all of our striving to fill the voids of purpose and meaning of life, it's actually God that's missing. But it's not just ignorance that calls us to, causes us to feel distance from God. Paul goes on to say, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them. And then he says this phrase, due to their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. Oh, this is not like some allusion to Frozen where God takes a heart of ice and, you know, <laughs> you know Elsa. This is not, this, that's not what this is about, okay? A person can feel alienated and distant from God not because God isn't near or because... For some reason, God's chosen to play a cosmic version of hide-and-seek, and we just kind of, we're going to find him, and God's like, um, he can't see me. No, that's, that's, not, that's not the thing. That's not the reason why we feel alienated from God, but sometimes we feel alienated from God. We feel like God isn't really making a difference in our life simply because we have a hard heart. Now, what does it mean to have a hard heart? <laughs> well, one commentator says this. The metaphor of hard hearts has less to do with emotions and more to do with willful resistance to God and his truth. Willful resistance to God and his truth. Separation from God comes from not knowing God truly. This is a result of ignorance that comes from choosing not to know or serve God. In other words, choosing not to embrace The continual learning, increasingly learning and study of who God is, in particular through the scriptures, or what we call theology, can cause a hard heart. I I meet so many people who are followers of Jesus that just say, like, I just, my life feels so empty right now. God doesn't feel alive. And I I just, you know, I'm like, oh, man, are are, are you going to... You go in a, you, you, you know, are you part of like a local church? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I go to a gathering like every week. And like, are you part of a, a, a small group? Yeah, I'm part of a small group. I'm like, okay. I'm like, oh, okay, let me try to figure this out. Um, I, have you been reading your Bible? Well, you know, it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. And listen, it's hard. It's hard to be disciplined. It really is. But just because something is hard and we don't do it, doesn't mean that our lives don't suffer the consequence of not doing what, we, what we're supposed to do. I mean, I, I joke with my kids all the time, like, I'm the prime example of what happens when you embrace living the kind of life that you're not supposed to live. I mean, look at this. This is constantly, and I'm getting heavier by year after year, and I just hide it really well because I wear Spanx. <laughs> not really. Or maybe, just kidding. 
Some of you now, you're not going to listen to anything you say like, is he really wearing Spanx? I don't know. I, I thought he was. I mean, he's looking a little chubby around the face, but the body's still kind of skinny. So, you know. So back up here. Ready? Are you ready? Sorry. In other words, listen, not committing your lives to theology, the study of God, can cause a hard heart. I, I love what C.S. Lewis, some of you know who he is. He wrote a book called Mere Christianity. He writes a lot of stuff on, on, on theology, thought, and, and he's just a great writer in general. But he has this to say. I thought it was really great. He says this. Uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis, what he does in length, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he, he answers in length the proposition that being a student of theology isn't really all that important in becoming, you know, and being a fully engaged follower of Jesus. He's answering this idea that like, well, I don't need theology, I just need my religion, and I need love, and I need like, and you gotta, <laughs> it sounds like, oh, that sounds like 2019. No, 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 this was like back in the day. And so things haven't changed much. And so he answers in length this proposition that in order to have a full Christian life, we don't have to have theology, we don't need to study and learn who God is, he, he says this, he says this, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones. That's like, that's offensive, I think, to some people, right? Well, who do you tell me I'm wrong? <laughs> I, I think... I think sometimes when we go through our lives and we find ourselves disconnected and alienated from God, but yet we feel like we've got all these ideas about who God is, and it just seems like he's not there. Maybe it's because our theology is not really that deep. We have a lot of ideas about who God is, but maybe they're just wrong ones. And he says they're bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas for a great many of the ideas about God which are trotted out as novelties today are simply the ones which real theologians tried centuries ago and rejected. Listen, if you love and follow Jesus, choosing not to engage in continual learning about who God is and what he has done to rescue and restore all of creation, which includes you and me, back to how he intended it to be, in and through the work of Jesus, this can cause a hard heart. This can cause a hard heart. And when your heart is hard, there's not much a difference that God can make. But there are other things that can cause a hard heart. The writer of Hebrews talks about it in length and how to keep the faith in Hebrews chapter 3, a whole chapter dedicated really a whole book about how to keep the faith. He wrote this, Hebrews 3.15. Remember what it says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. Don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. So our hearts become hardened when we reject God and the purposes he created for us. Our hearts reject God when we, uh, our hearts are hardened when we reject God and the purposes he created for us. Listen, when we reject God, we lose that essential life-giving, soul-satisfying relationship that leaves us, in turn, starving, feeling naked and ashamed. And, 
in reality, when we reject who God is, we, we actually repeat the same sin that Adam and Eve did. And where did that leave them? Wearing fig leaves, hiding from God, feeling ashamed. And what does a life that is rejected a life living God's way, what does that look like? What does it look like to reject living life for God and for God's glory and instead living it for something else? It looks a lot like what Paul says here in verse 19. He says this, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When God is no longer who we place our hope, our trust, and our affection in, there's something that happens. In the words of a modern-day poet, not a follower of Jesus by any stance, but a good poet nonetheless, John Mayer writes this in a song called Something's Missing. I'm dizzy from the shopping mall. I searched for joy, but I bought it all. It doesn't help the hunger pains and a thirst I'd have to drown first to ever satiate. And he goes on the course, something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is, and I don't know what it is at all. I remember when I first heard that song, I was like, ah, this song's grooving. Anyone know the song? Anyways, if you don't know, it doesn't matter. But then he gets to this point and he just yells out, something's missing. And I'm like, my heart begins to break. Because in his song is the cry of a hardened heart, a heart that is alienated from God. And I can't help but listen to that song, one, to enjoy its groove, but also be brokenhearted by the reality that there are people all around, including even in my life, in different seasons, where if I'm not careful, I have a hardened heart. Because I try to fill the voids with everything else except for God. I try to fill the hunger pains with anything except God. And when our hearts become callous and God is missing as a source of our life, then we become people who are dizzied by the cravings to satisfy the hunger and the thirst caused by an absence of God in our lives. And in the pursuit of satiating our thirsts and relieving the hunger pains of a life without God, we become people who give ourselves over to what Paul would say is, in our Translation here, sensuality. And here's what you need to wear. I think sensuality has that overtones, and at least in our language, of this idea of like sexual nature. But you need to know that the original word that Paul uses here is a Greek word that literally means this, unbridled lust and excess without fear or shame. It's the pursuit of desires, unbridled, in excess, without fear or shame. It's pursuing who you feel you are without fear and without shame, even if it means that it hardens your hearts to the reality of God. That's what it literally means. And this is the person who feels enslaved to their desires. 
This person who can't say no to porn, not because it's simply lust, but because it's an escape, a way to find comfort to relieve stress and add excitement to life or to give you actually something to enjoy or look forward to. It's the person who turns to substances for refuge. It's more than just a bodily desire for food or drugs or even alcohol, but it's a craving for the feeling, that feeling you just get when the drink hits your system, when the drugs hit your system. Or even it might be that false sense of security, safety, and control that you feel when you do what you know is actually harmful to you, but it is the thing that you want the most. Let me be clear here that when Paul says that those whose hearts are hardened have given themselves to sensuality, he isn't just referring to the lust for bad things either. That's an easy one. Oh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. (laughs) What hardens a heart is sometimes the greedy pursuit of anything you feel like you have to have in order for life to be good. Let me just say that again because I think some of you need to hear that. What hardens a heart is sometimes the greedy pursuit of anything you feel like you have to have in order for your life to be good. If you're not tracking with me, let me give you an example. For some people, it's the security of money. The thought of not being financially secure produces all kinds of anxiety in your heart if you're this kind of person. And so what do you do? You, you save and you stress and then you're stingy. Not because you don't want to be a generous person, but because you have either consciously or unconsciously begun to believe that an abundance of money is what you feel has to be there for you in order for you to feel secure or satisfied or for your life just to be good. For others, it's a greed. It's an insatiable desire for success, to be successful, to, see, to be seen as a leader, to be seen as an influencer. For others, it's a craving, an insatiable desire to constantly be in romantic relationship or to eventually be in a romantic relationship. And the point is this. And none of those things are bad. I'm not saying like, I mean, I was craving to be in a relationship with my wife and so I married her. (laughs) And that's a really good thing. But there's a line. There's a line. And the point is this. Everyone's heart is unique, but I guarantee this. Your heart and my heart has certain kind of cravings that if we're not careful can harden our hearts. So the question is, and how do you find your craving, right? Like, well, okay, I'm scared now, Phil, you got me. And then half of you other like, ah, I don't like this guilt stuff. I'm tuning you out. Okay, well, whatever. For those of you who care, here's how you find your craving. Just ask yourself, what's the one thing I feel I have to have in life for life to be good? 
Like, what's that one thing, like, if, oh, if it ever got taken away from me? Oh. What's that one thing? And it's not just the good thing. That, so there's a difference between value. I don't want to be confused. There's a difference between value. Like, I value my family. And if they were to die, I would tell you, in the immediacy, that would not be good. <laughs> okay? So track with me here. I'm talking about the insatiable cravings. For instance, like, let's talk about family. For some people, this may play out like this. It may be the desire to have your family. It may be an insatiable desire for you to have your family around and for everyone in your family just to get along. But it's, it's beyond a normal desire for family. It's an insatiable desire, a craving that makes you believe that life can literally not be good and has no point to it if family is not close and everything is in perfect harmony and, 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 and your life just becomes absolutely devastated with any kind of disruption of that harmony, of that proximity that you have built up for yourself, that you have called your maybe dream. Does it make sense? Okay, so I'm messing with a lot of people here. That's okay, because you're good students of the Word. You don't have to listen to everything I say. But I hope I'm challenging you to think of what the Scripture has to say regarding the kind of difference God makes. But before we understand that, we have to understand what keeps us from allowing God to actually make a difference in our hearts and in our lives. And when we have hardened hearts, it blocks, it literally blocks the opportunity for God to live in us and through us. So Paul lays out what it means to live like a Gentile, and we took a look at that in the first couple of verses. And it doesn't mean don't act, when we say this, it doesn't mean don't act like a certain ethnicity or race. And so what he says is don't live like those who are ignorant of God and have hard hearts, the kind of hearts that really, at the end of the day, of the thing they want the most is not God. Don't live that way. So, I mean, if we were to just say, you know, okay, that's our study for today. In Jesus' name, let's pray. That would be really sad. But Paul, Paul gives us some hope. He says this in Ephesians 4, 20 to 22. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. In these verses that Paul begins, it's really in these verses that Paul begins to explain the real difference <laughs> that God makes and how God does more than change just our behaviors, which he'll talk about later, but first he wants to establish, he said, and I can almost hear him like as he's thinking this, like I got to put this first because I'm going to list some things that I practically, I actually really want to help these Ephesians align their lives God's way. But before I get super practical and they think I'm writing a book of moral standards, they need to know, they need to know that it's just more than morality. It's more than that. God did not, does not exist just to change our morality. God exists to change us from the inside out. So how does God do this? How does he change us from the inside out? Well, first is this. 
God gives us a newer and clearer knowledge of who he is through Jesus. He gives us a newer and clearer knowledge of who he is through Jesus. The fact that Paul refers to Jesus Christ here simply as Jesus is something that many Bible commentators recognize as an intentional departure from the term Paul most always uses when he describes Jesus Christ. He just uses the word Christ. If you're wondering if I'm making that up, here's what one commentator says. The name Jesus, standing alone, is rare in Paul and seems to refer to the earthly Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. You can read commentary after commentary after commentary. Those who have made it a practice of theology and life, <laughs> they will tell you. This is not a typical Pauline approach to describing Jesus Christ. So it's very distinct. In other words, the newer and clearer knowledge of who God is comes through not just Son of God, one of the three of the Trinity, but the life of Jesus. When he, speaks of, when he says the word Jesus, he's talking about his, his birth, his death, his, and, and his raising from the dead. Literally, the story of Jesus. And in the story of Jesus, we see the beauty of God. And in seeing the beauty of God revealed to us is the story of Jesus. And here's what it does. When you come across the story of Jesus, like really, really, and you embrace it, here's what it does. It changes us. It changes us. In case you never noticed, the scripture is not arranged thematically like a reference book where you look up how to raise kids on page 40 or how to get along with your spouse on page 100 or how to vote on page 28. That's because the Bible is a story. And here's, here's the thing. Listen, you don't catch anything. It's being swept up into God's story that makes all the difference. It's becoming enamored and becoming part. How many of you are readers here? You like reading? You ever got swept up just by a book? Right? You, just get, you just get encapsulated by it. or Maybe you're not a book person, but have you ever watched a movie and all of a sudden you find yourself crying like I did in Terminator? No, I'm just kidding. No. Right? And you just, you know, it's all, it's all, all of a sudden like the reality of the screen intersects the reality of your life and you're like, I know that's not real, but I'm just like, oh, Bambi, no. You know that's true about your everyday life. Listen, when you get swept up in, into the story of God through Jesus, it changes you. It changes you. Because when you meet God in the story of Jesus, that is what changes everything. That's what makes the difference. And the story of Jesus is a story with such beauty and drama that when you get swept into it, it, it changes your life not by just correcting behaviors, <laughs> but by changing you fundamentally. When you get swept into the story of who God is, all of a sudden temptations lose their power because you've seen greater beauty. Man does not live on bread alone, but upon every word. 
comes from the mouth of God. When, when you have been swept up into the story of God, now you know that what your purpose is and, and you know how much power there is in the universe that has been made available to you because you know the story. That Jesus has said, greater things, these things and greater you will do in my name. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So go into all the world, making disciples, teaching them, baptizing them in the Father and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've taught you. And lo, I am what? With you always. When you get swept into the story of God, you become overwhelmed with the reality just how much power has been given to you in this life. When you get swept up in the story, you understand that the love of God shown to you in the story of Jesus transforms you into the kind of person who therefore loves and forgives. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life. We do not know love, but this is how we know what love is. What? Christ laid down his life for us. And so here's what happens. What God does to us, he intends to do what? Through us. When you get swept into the story, you begin to understand these things. And so our ignorance and hard hearts are overcome by encountering the beauty of God in the story of Jesus, what we sometimes here call the gospel. But there is one thing we need, and really, only God can do it. Paul says it like this, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Really, the second difference that God makes is that God gives us a renewed spiritual mindset. He gives us a renewed spiritual mindset. If we want to have lives that are not ignorant and hard-hearted, then we need a spiritual renewal. This is why Paul prays for the churches in Ephesians twice, once in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 3, and he prays that the Spirit of God would use the story of God to make the beauty of God come alive in their hearts. That's what he's praying. In a different letter, Paul speaks of how God gives us a renewed spiritual mindset. He writes, to Titus, and he says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, aka living lives with hardened hearts. But <laughs> when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Amen. Not because of works done by us, in righteousness, even a better amen, but according to his what? Mercy. By the washing of regeneration and what? Renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, to wrap this up, I know my time here is ending. What difference does God make? Right? That's the original question. Well, the easy answer is this, a big difference. He changes everything. He turns death into life. He turns foolishness into wisdom. He just doesn't change our behavior, but he changes our desires and he changes our hearts, or as the scripture says, 
In Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is a promise for anyone who would embrace God through in God through and in the work of Jesus Christ by simply believing in Jesus and surrendering your life to him. That's good news. So, as we launch into this series, I just think here's a couple questions for us to ask. What difference has God made in your life? Like, really, what, what difference has God made in your life? As you look at your life, has he made a difference? How about now? What difference is he making in your life? It's one thing to have had God make a difference in your life in the past. But is God making a difference in your life now? And if he isn't, maybe the last question I'll ask you is this. When was the last time you genuinely felt like God was making a difference in your life? And whether it's been a while or you've never experienced God making a difference in your life, here's the truth. God can make a difference in your life. You can experience the Spirit of God using the story of God to make the beauty of God come alive in your heart. Because this is the difference that God makes.